Tyrell Ventura here for the Independent Streak Podcast, only on Jesse Ventura's Die First, Then Quit. And I'm joined by two absolutely wonderful folks who have the Vanguard on YouTube. Man, you want to check out all types of good political commentary and interviews, check out my man Zach and Gavin on Vanguard. And they join me now. How are you guys doing today? Doing awesome. Doing great. Yeah, yeah, I guess we decided to speak at the same time, but the uh, but yeah, we're both doing great. You know, it's a little bit hot here in Kansas City. You were just telling us it's a little toasty in Minnesota as well. So I guess that's a defining, uh, unifying quality. But either way, yeah, doing great. Thanks so much for the invite. Hey, this is a question that look, you guys started the Vanguard. You're both what? Uh, yeah, how old are you guys now? Like twenty two? Twenty four. No, twenty four. Okay, so you're twenty four years old. How long ago did you start the Vanguard, and how long ago did you guys start like really kind of putting yourselves out there? as political commentators and interviewers and, and talking and getting getting what's on your mind uh, out your mouth. Yeah, I think it's a little twofold because we had the Vanguard for a little longer than we've been podcasting for a while. It just existed as this written blog, the Vanguard.blog, uh, where Gavin and I would you know, write every, all the time, uh, blog pieces. I think we both put out one or two every week for a really like a year, it felt like a long time, the entire primary season uh, of, 20, uh, of 2019 to 2020. Um, and it wasn't until May of that year that Gavin was like, bro, we should just start doing a podcast and recording it and putting it on YouTube. And, you know, obviously as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. As Zach said, it was pretty much all my idea. So no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Take that credit, Gavin. Take that credit. <laughs> no, but yeah, we actually, uh, we started the Vanguard podcast during the lockdown. So, you know, obviously there wasn't much else to do. Um, and we did decide that it would be an ideal time to uh, start the podcast specifically because actually Green Party candidate Howie Hawkins and his running mate, Angela Walker, had just become the uh, Green Party, um, you know, candidates. And and we were interested in finding out more about them since something we've always had a strong passion and focus on our show about is the third party movement. So we reached out to Howie and Angela just, you know, wondering, would you guys be interested in doing an interview over Zoom, just like we're doing right now? Um, and obviously, you know, they both responded yes, because the actual media wasn't covering them. So they have to go on shows like Zach and I's um, anyway. You know, we did that. We talked to them, had a good time, um, uploaded it to YouTube. Those those interviews probably didn't even get 300 views, um, but that's that's where it started, right? You know, we were just like, uh, let's do this. And we realized that we could do this, that it actually was possible to, you know, literally just uh, fire up Zoom, you know, send the link over to a candidate or person that we want to talk to and upload it to YouTube afterward. And, and as Zach said, the rest is history. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that the door was opened in the way that it was because the, the common joke, and this was, I mean, something Gavin and I, I mean, really Gavin told me a lot of the times it's like, bro, everybody wants to have a podcast. You're, we're not Joe Rogan. Like this is never going to fucking happen. We don't live in LA. Nobody knows who we are. Everybody wants to sit on their ass and yammer for a living. Like, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, um, the uniqueness of the situation of being in lockdown, of seeing so many people just doing zoom calls, uh, where they're just asking people questions. Like, you know, we were like, fuck it. We have questions. It kind of, even the playing field, right? If you're watching ESPN and both of their hosts are just talking shit from home and you are like, well, fuck, I can set up a webcam and use my Mac and sit down and chat with my homie. And it's like, make it look pretty much the same. That was a huge you know, equalizer, uh, that I felt like, you know, helped us at least, you know, get over that initial hunch of just looking so unprofessional when we were talking. Yeah. I want to ask you guys that, like what, uh, just on a purely performance based aspect of like, you know, having to do these interviews, things like that. Like, what are you guys 
how do you guys go about your prep and what have you learned like how 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 do you feel you've gotten better or you know or what mistakes did you make early on things of that nature I mean, as far as prep, it's not a whole ton that goes into it, to be completely honest. Um, we try to write out some questions before the interview or have some basic outline topics, you know, ready to go so we don't forget them. Um, but for the most part, you know, we kind of just let thing let the chips fall where they may. And, and usually about nine times out of 10, it ends up being a really good conversation. Of course, that also has to do with just how approachable um, whoever we're interviewing is or whoever our guest is. Like, for example, when we have you on, it's obviously always a, just an effortless conversation. We have a lot in common. It's easy to talk. But every once in a while, you know, you do get a guest that might be a little more prickly or you know, just not as uh, easy to talk to. So, you know, there's those situations, but, you know, for the most part, it, it really is shockingly easy. Uh, although I will say the, the biggest thing is just that it takes time to practice. And, and that's why, you know, Zach and I are really glad that we did do as many interviews as we did in the early days with, you know, candidates running for office and activism and all of these interviews that got probably less than a hundred views. Um, but we really were able to practice and get to the point where we were confident on the mic. Um, and you know, that that's been quite a journey for myself. Like obviously I'll let Zach speak for himself, but I never saw myself doing any sort of public speaking or any sort of, you know, public performance. I always, you know, wanted to be a, a, a filmmaker. And the reason I like filmmaking is because you're on the, op, you're on the, you're not in front of the camera, you're behind the camera. It's like, I'm comfortable pointing the camera at someone else and letting them perform. I never saw myself doing anything that's public speaking or performance or anything of that ilk. So, you know, again, at first I was really nervous and I would have to um, really plan out the questions and, and think about how I was going to do it. But over the course of a year or so, you know, you just, you just get more comfortable. And, and now I'm at the point where there's really very little prep required. Um, and, and Zach and I just have the charisma and, and the relationship necessary uh, to be able to pull off a podcast, at least, you know, a, one that's uh, got us to the point where we are. Yeah. I think that that's, that's pretty unanimous for both of us, except for the fact that, you know, I came from, I was the other side of that coin. I'll take credit for that. You know, Gavin was the one that never saw him in, in a podcast or I've been a slut for the limelight my entire life. I was in improv troops. I was in theater. I was like, you know, I was in a bunch of cringy, terrible plays when I was a kid. Okay. You know, I did that whole shit. And uh, I was like, no, dude, we're fucking funny, man. We make each other laugh all the time. I hang out with a lot of dudes. Don't make me laugh together. We're going to fucking put something together and make it happen. And, you know, uh, I think that if anything, uh, you know, that's, that's more of what I, I was able to contribute to the show. Gavin had this massive amount of history uh, of knowledge of bread tube of, you know, fucking uh, this person said this about this person. And, you know, we've both been following uh, politics basically like fucking baboons since we were in fifth grade we are degenerate fucking i'm not kidding when i say that this thing people always think we're like a little tongue-in-cheek joking no i met gavin when i was eating a like blueberry bagel which is what i always brought for lunch and i remember that he always had activia yogurt with him which he yeah you can see the look on his fucking face is true uh and we would sit there and we would debate and, and i will own on on my chin the fact that i was the simp for john mccain you know i was just parroting everything that my dad said about how the communists were going to take away our country and that they were going to be soft on the terrorists and and, you know, we needed to go get these sons of bitches over in the Middle East and all these kinds of things that were really common refrains. Um, you know, uh, you know, Obama was a Muslim, maybe got it thrown around, too. Right. Um, you know, I'm just saying, right. Uh, this is the kind of world that, you know, we kind of came from. And and so we would argue about that. And then over time, 
Uh, you know, I obviously started to form political opinions of my own, but that was always like a bedrock of Gavin and I's friendship. And, I, you know, I realize now particularly, but even at the time, I feel like we've always known that's a really unique thing. Uh, like most people for, with the Midwest sensibilities that we have uh, don't really follow politics their whole lives, right? Uh, just in, instinctively, you know? Uh, and that's why we always call HST the patron saint of the vanguard, right? He kind of all, all uh, you know, he kind of represents what we aspire to, just that kind of like straight talking, kind of like cut through the bullshit, uh, but also never afraid to get mired in the horse race of it all either and have a good time. When you say HST, you're of course talking about Hunter S. Thompson. Oh yeah, absolutely, sorry. You know, it, it's interesting when you brought up the aspect of, of this kind of battle politically within families, you know, where, where you know, the kids are suddenly getting a little bit different ideas than the adults and, and how much of your parents reflect on you and kind of your belief systems and things like that. I mean, obviously, I get asked that question all the time, given my father and things like that, you know, how much of an influence has he played in your life? So let me ask you guys that same question. How difficult do you think that is and how many people actually kind of face that? And that's got to be tough. Right. When you suddenly disagree with with what your family is saying, that's got to be a real issue for folks, especially in their 20s and, and teens. And, and, and now, as you as you guys have done, are speaking out publicly like everybody has a voice now because of social media. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. And even though my parents were probably more in line with my current politics than, you know, Zach's parents were with his, um, you know, they generally are on the left. Um, there's still a lot of areas where as I've grown as a political thinker and a political commentator that I've realized we have massive, massive disagreements, even though, you know, I was always raised uh, uh, with pretty good values, in my opinion, you know, um, not trying to, you know, throw any shade towards my parents. They were wonderful. I think they're, you know, great people, all that stuff. But yeah, there's a lot of areas where you start to realize there are differences. Um, specifically, I think when it comes to like being um, on the left, but pro versus anti-capitalism, I think that a lot of people would say they're on the left, but they're still capitalists. Um, and something that I think Zach and I and, and a lot of people have come to realize that has been a defining aspect of our personal ideologies is that, yeah, it's, it's cool to be on the left. It's cool to you know, vote for progressive candidates and stuff like that. Um, but what we're more focused on at this point is actually challenging the underlying system of it all and kind of realizing that this two party duopoly is is all just kind of smoke and mirrors. You know, it's all just kind of a way to keep you to so you think you're invested and you think you're engaging in um, activism. But meanwhile, you're really you're really not challenging the 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 real uh, powers that be, which underlies it all. Um, so that's that's one thing where I think a lot of well-meaning people on the left, like my parents, for example, you know, they might think that oh well, if we just vote for Democrats and you know make sure that Republicans never control the White House again and, and all that kind of stuff, then we'll be good, right? Like that's the end goal is making sure that like the Democratic Party just has total supremacy essentially in government. A lot of people on the left really, you know, are liberals or whatever you want to call them. A lot of people think that's kind of the end goal and that like you know until until we totally remove the possibility of there ever being a republican in the white house again um you know that's the battle but uh you know you kind of realize as you look more into it that actually in many cases a lot of the real issues we're up against whether it's climate change or um the the uh the war machine um that both parties are complicit so it's not enough to just go vote for democrats it's not enough to just you know cast your vote for joe biden and, and think that everything's going to be all right that's that's like 
you know, that's not even half the battle. That's not even a tenth of the battle. Um, so I think that's one thing that kind of separates uh, potentially some of the younger generation, maybe because of climate change and stuff like that. But I don't want to, you know, bring age into it because obviously there's a lot of older people, too, that have the same exact analysis and have for a lot longer than I have. So, you know. Uh, everyone, you know, comes to their own conclusions. But I do think that's one thing that I think probably a lot of people, Zach, in our age can maybe relate to as far as uh, as kind of uh, differing from their parents' perspective on these things. Um, but what would you say, Zach? Yeah, well, I think a lot of that is the, what, of what you mentioned is really similar across the board for the both of us because we're just able to pinpoint and identify the fact of the matter that a lot of, uh, you know, the world's problems are created because of you. It's hegemonic capitalism, right, in the Western way of life. And that's not a fucking bridge that many people in America have reached yet, right? So it's not like, you know... Uh, you, you know, if you frame it that way, like, you know, I, I'm sure neither of our parents agree with our politics. And, you know, um, my mom is a mixed bag, right? She works for a Republican, but, you know, she's pro-choice. So, I mean, you know, from her end of the spectrum, like, you know, uh, we disagree, but we never talked about politics pretty much ever my whole life. Like my mom and I, we didn't talk about it. And that, and that was really different from my dad, who was extremely vocal my entire life. But uh, the thing I have to give to my dad is that he's so Gen X, right? That the dude just doesn't care what anybody else's politics are at all. Like, you know, he, you know, this dude, when I was growing up would play like a mix of Rage Against the Machine and Kid Rock. Okay. Like I'm telling you, the dude had no, like, political compass that you know he voted republican because that's what his dad did and he owned a small business and that's what people in kansas city who own small businesses fucking did and uh you know and and if i talk to him about politics now like you know he's more like concerned with shit that regular people are concerned with you know like what the fuck is going on with the gas prices zach you know what why the fuck can people at walmart not pay their bills you know walmart's the biggest company in the world amazon fucking you know pays people way more than walmart pay. Like, stuff like that you know answer regular kind of guy question my dad is as blue collar working class joe as you can get you know, he's a, you know, 12 stepper that works in a factory, right? Like he is working class Joe and, and, and he, but he just, he doesn't really give a fuck about other people's politics at all. And, and so it, it gave, definitely gave me the freedom to just be like, well, I'm going to make up my own fucking mind about everything. Uh, and I think that actually allowed me to kind of just be like, all right, if I'm starting from scratch where I have now, you know, I'm like 13 and I'm starting to like make my own fucking ideas up about things. Um, you know, it kind of, I definitely had the hands-off approach to you know, be able to just do that. I never had to deal with, and I don't think Gavin ever had to deal with either. Your parents are, you know, really friendly and kind people, the whole like raining shit down on you for your ideas. Like, you know, um, my parents were always cool with me just kind of like, you know, having my own opinions. They know I do the show. Sometimes they watch it. They're never going to be like super angry with me or like try and make me feel some sort of way uh, for expressing myself, which I know is not the experience for everybody. So I don't want to claim like this, like youth, like persecution when my parents were super laid back about this, actually. And I think it had a lot to do with how I developed. That's fascinating, man. That's really fascinating. And it's interesting as you say that, because it does kind of allow you to, as a, as a, commentator as an activist as an interviewer it allows you to kind of have that that reach i think especially because where you guys are based out of like right in the middle of the country it allows you to still like it's very easy i've found to get caught in the bubble uh no matter what you know whether it's the bubble of washington dc or the bubble of your own activism or the bubble of your own political beliefs it's very easy to kind of get that very tunnel vision sometimes where you're not quite understanding that there's still 300 million people in this country with a everybody has their own political viewpoint because the idea is always at least in my opinion it's always been what we do is to try to teach it's trying to share information so that way other people who you know it's easy to preach to the choir it's easy to preach to your own crowd they're always going to love you for that the hard thing is reaching those folks who don't agree with your viewpoints or don't understand your viewpoints you got to try to educate them 
What have you seen in terms of your audience and things like that? Um, how has the audience reaction been over the years? And how do you handle You know, Do you try to make an effort to reach out to people beyond like the scope of your core belief system? Oh, the audience reaction has always been <laughs> a specific way. No, a lot of people are really cool. But if you piss people off, I, I think that, you know, Gavin will reiterate the fact that always it, it always takes people a couple a, a while to come around to new ideas. Yeah, well, there's also a problem on the Internet, specifically with YouTube, where, you know, there's going to be a comment section, right? But who are the people that are actually taking the time to put comments in the comment section? Well, largely it's unhinged losers that have nothing better with their life. Uh, and then about, you know, 30% of the time, it's really reasonable people that actually want to engage in the discussion. So, you know, sometimes it could be tough to gauge how, uh, you know, our audience is reacting to something. Because again, it seems like usually when there's a really like emphatic response, it's coming from people that aren't necessarily actually interested in like a good faith uh, discussion or a real conversation. They're more just interested in scolding you for having a different opinion than themselves. Um, and I and I know that because a lot of the videos that we put out that seem the most controversial, they have all of these negative comments and people that are, you know, talking mad shit on me and Zach. Uh, you'll look at the like to dislike ratio in those videos, and it's usually like over 80% percent like. So even when you have a video that's like 80% of the people that watched it liked it, if you look at the comments, you think that everyone hated it because again, it's all the loud mouth. So sometimes with YouTube in specific, but you know, in general online, it is tough to gauge how the audience is reacting to something, whether or not they like it or whether or not they hate it. Um, but ultimately the I think the philosophy that Zach and I have kind of settled on and the one that I encourage any content creator to settle on is to not be too obsessed with that stuff in general, not be too obsessed with the comments or the analytics or any of that kind of feedback you get. I mean, you definitely want to be in touch with your audience, but also you don't want to fall into audience capture where you just start saying what you think your audience wants to hear. Um, that way you get more nice comments and more upvotes and all that kind of stuff. Cause then you're sacrificing your uh, credibility as a commentator and you're sacrificing what actually makes your voice unique from everyone else's. Um, and you see this happen again, specifically on YouTube where some channels, they start out as free thinking independence, but then they uh, experience audience capture. And then you, you can see them start to craft their content more and more and more specifically for the kind of audience that they're chasing for whatever reason. And I always find that to be a little bit disappointing um, because again, it's like now we're not really even hearing your original thoughts anymore. You're just saying what you think your audience wants affirmed to them. Um, so it, again, it's definitely complex. I think Zach and I, our ultimate um, outlook on this is, again, we're going to say whatever we think. We're going to give our opinion. Um, and if that reaches people, that's awesome. If it doesn't, that's, you know, that is what it is. Uh, I think that unlike some other political podcasts, one thing that does separate Zach and I is that um, we don't take ourselves like that seriously. Like, you know, we certainly want our ideas to be spread and we want our ideas to win out ultimately at the end of the day in the discourse. Um, but the point of our podcast isn't to like proselytize people or, or even necessarily change their mind. You know, Zach and I are discussing what we believe we're having conversations about our ideas and our opinions. Um, but if, if it doesn't end up changing anyone's mind, it's, it's no big deal. You know, the point is just to have a good conversation and exchange of ideas. And again, as much as I want socialism to win or whatever, I'm not going to be under the impression that Zach and I have the ability to, you know, dismantle capitalism with our dinky little podcast that has 25 K subs. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so again, some of it's just like letting go of the audience and just, you know, 
letting the chips fall where they may. Yeah, exactly. And if I can piggyback on that a little bit, I think it's important to mention like, you know, there, there, it seems to be like a real like polarization, like on how most commentators handle this. And maybe we'll feel different about this if we like 10 X someday and become like big time or whatever. Uh, but the people who like, I either get so obsessed by the comment section that you can just tell that they read it all and they live and die by it. And they're so in their own fucking little world or they won't engage with it at all. And I think that the thing that Gavin and I have fucking landed on is it's like, you just have to walk through that fire one time. You have to take all those hard L's and spend a lot of time in your bedroom in the dark, watching noir films on the criterion streaming service. And then you just come out of that darkness and you've like, wow, I've eaten so much shit on the internet that I, I can do anything. And then you can start just reading any comment about yourself and try and taking it actually as a rational human being, instead of somebody that's got like so much emotion uh, attached in the product that we create, because like it or not, you know, your, your show becomes like, you know, a child to you, right? Like you put so much into it. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, like a chef in their dish or something like that. Like, it's just a part of you, uh, when it leaves you. Um, and so, you know, you take it really seriously, but at the end of the day, kind of like Gavin said, you have to take yourself, uh, less seriously, right? Like, okay, somebody was mean to you. You've probably said some shitty things about other people. Life goes on. Let's rock and roll. There were a bunch of people who sent you super chats to say that your show's awesome and that you really opened their eyes on something. It's just like, okay, well, you're not going to fucking catch everybody, right? You go blast yourself out to a billion people. Some people are going to think you're full of shit and that's just a fact of life. And, and you know, once you can kind of gauge that and move forward, um, I think it's beneficial all around. Thank you for that Criterion streaming shout out, by the way, because that is a, that is an amazing, amazing channel for for film buffs. Obviously one of the biggest topics we face today, and I think that you guys have done some really good interviews and, and had some really good commentary about it, is the, you know, the whole shadow banning, deplatforming, uh, large tech companies controlling the narrative of who gets to be heard and who doesn't get to be heard and and all those things that fall under that free speech banner that the, the, the country was founded upon. Um, I've always believed that the First Amendment's there to protect unpopular speech not popular speech because popular speech doesn't need protection and what was once unpopular speech is now popular speech today and so you always kind of have to have that doorway open how have you guys in in looking at what you do and, and knowing that you're on youtube you know obviously i know what happens with that because i lost my entire career essentially at at rt all of the work that i'd done got got disappeared in, in the matter of a, a day a second however long it took them to make the click <laughs> at the youtube head offices um how are you guys kind of looking at your work and your body of work and moving forward into that have you thought about how you would potentially combat that if it were to happen to you guys or or what you would do in those situations moving forward or you know are you kind of branching out to other platforms like how, how do you you know how do you handle that uh, I mean, it, it's definitely scary and, and it's, uh, I can't say that we specifically have a plan in place in the event that YouTube decided to really mess with us, pull our channel, demonetize us. Um, but I mean, that would be a bad day, right? That would be a terrible day because we do stream on other services. Like technically we have a Twitch, technically we're on Rockfin, which is another kind of YouTube alternative that, you know, focuses more on free speech. But unfortunately the, the reality is, is that, you know, a vast majority of our um, income as commentators and a vast majority of our audience is on YouTube. So, um, yeah, it's one of the real, uh, unfortunate realities of working in this, I guess you could call it space or industry or whatever you want to call it, um, is that you are kind of living and dying by this shadowy corporation that doesn't really give a shit about free speech as a concept at all. Uh, I mean, they're a corporation, they care about their bottom line. Um, and you know, if they think that something's too controversial to, you know, want to have their name attached to it, then 
they're going to enforce, you know, their terms of service, how they see fit. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. There's no appeal process. There's no way that, you know, you can uh, sue them for not, you know, standing by the first amendment. Nope. They have the right to do that as a corporation. And, and, you know, frankly, that's one of the reasons why we are so anti-corporate and anti-capitalist because you end up having these big tech companies becoming the, um, the, the gatekeepers of free speech. You know, that's not how a society should work. And yeah, you can say, well, you can just go outside and say whatever you want. No one's going to stop you. And that's true. Uh, but in today's day and age, you need access to YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and all the rest to uh, exist in the economy as it's set up for us. And we don't have a choice in that. You know, we don't have any say in how our economy functions. Um, but if you want to be a political commentator, then you absolutely do need Twitter and you absolutely do need YouTube and you absolutely need all of these social media. So for them to just have the ability to take that away, uh, it is genuinely terrifying. Um, and, and yeah, as far as like, you know, a, a backup plan or something, I mean, it would be going down the street and applying to the, you know, local bar down the street or the yeah, local Gavin, convenience can, I'm going to sucker Gavin right into the industry. If you got, if we close <laughs> this down, I'm going to be like, don't worry, son, I got you. I know people that can put you in a dishwasher room tomorrow. Well, that's no, my plan. Then. That's my plan. <laughs> yeah. That's my plan. Cause that'll be it for the Vanguard. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, and it would be, uh, it would be a tragedy. So yeah, obviously YouTube has everybody by the balls, the broader, like fucking Google ownership has everybody by the balls because if you can't google search you if you can't be on youtube right this is what happens and and so this is what i well, like i'll admit is like i guess slightly self-serving uh you know reason that informs my entire take on on free speech but i i don't know i feel like i would feel this way and i've, I've always kind of felt this way that you know look the only thing that you do by censoring people uh you know let's then let's get it out of the way i i'm not including things that meet the legal definition of a crime i don't think you should be able to put let's all go to this person's house and you know fucking do x crime here like obviously that's against the law or like you know Let's things that Kavanaugh. Um, yeah exactly well i think you should protest in public i'm just kidding, bro. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> yeah okay anyway we can go down that rabbit hole another day i know you're fucking with me but anyway um yeah so i i think that you have every uh right to uh you know, say what you think. And, and that the only thing that happens when you, um, you know, uh, try and take that away from people is that it marginalizes them in a way that makes them sexy and enticing. And, and the people who are going to be most vulnerable to their bullshit anyway are going to be the ones that are find them because they're the people who want to believe. And, you know, all of these uh, different uh, kinds of things, it's actually going to have like a stry sand effect. We talk about it on the show all the time. It, it doesn't actually do what you want. Like how many times have they temporarily banned Alex Jones from things like, you know, they permanently took him down from YouTube, but you know, he still has his now his insulated army of crazies, um, you know, that are paying for him and getting him on whatever the fuck shit that they can find him on. And, and, you know, how beneficial is that really for society other than us all be able to freely see what Alex is up to and have people whose job it is like me and Gavin to be like, okay, this is ridiculous. This doesn't add up. There's no evidence for this. This is how he's misplacing this with this, et cetera. And it happens, um, you know, all of the time. So I'm on a little bit of a, uh, on a little bit of a hill here, but I'm just saying that it'll always come around to bite us in the ass because as we always make the example of on the show, uh, when they took down r slash the Donald, right. Uh, they also took down r slash Chapo Chap Trap House right on Reddit. When one when one thing comes, the other comes, right? Uh, and you know we've seen a lot of uh, a, a larger effort to censor people recently, right? Uh, I mean, there's just been an undoubted wave. Uh, from all across the board, um, you know, uh, flagging people's accounts, bringing people uh, down, giving people strikes, all these different things. So it's definitely scary because, as Gavin said, we're, you know, we're flying with no parachutes. If the Vanguard blows up, like Gavin and I will go back to having 
very, very regular people jobs, right? That, you know, we have no, uh, we have no backup plan, right? Which is fine, right? And I think actually really makes our show even better uh, in, in the long run, because it's not like we're going back to apartments in New York City, uh, if the show is over, and, you know, pushing paper for a living. It's like, no, we'll be back out there in the working class pissed as ever trying to unionize whatever workplace we end up at, right? Yeah. Like, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And honestly, I mean, we're, we are currently members of the working class. We're not rich at all. And YouTube is our employer, just like how someone else has a normal boss. I mean, our boss might not exert as much direct control over us, but they still have the ability to totally pull the you know rug out from under us and send us to the fucking streets if they wish. And also, you know, something else I wanted to talk about, completely removing the vanguard from the equation and Zach and I's personal financial situation. I mean, I obviously, Zach and I grew up in the early 2000s. We were both born in the late 90s, and we came up when the internet was still this very unregulated place. And obviously, you know, there are aspects of an unregulated internet that are always going to be very dark and very negative. Obviously, if you're, for example, a member of a very marginalized community and you're in one of these online spaces with no regulation, you're probably going to be unfortunately subject to a lot of harassment and um, stuff like that. There's literally examples of, um, for example, trans people committing suicide because they were cyber bullied and stuff. So I'm not trying to sanitize any of that at all or say that it's you know better if people can say what they want in every situation. But I do remember back in the day when the internet was a lot less regulated a lot less gentrified, I would say. Um, and and it was just a, in many ways, again, not in every way, but in many ways, it was a much better, much more vibrant place to operate in. And now I think that it's so gentrified. It's so corporatized. Um, almost everywhere you go is like a pre-approved destination. It's very hard to find any kind of content or perspective that's really in a serious way alternative you know, there are alternative perspectives out there, but they're not really alternative, uh, or at least they're not easy to find. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, uh, algorithms too, because even if you have the legal ability to put your speech out there, um, it's often still just going to get totally buried by the algorithm. And obviously algorithms are what, uh, you know, how, how a website or social media determines what content you actually see. Um, so that's a form of censorship too, that not enough people talk about. Uh, but just the fact that these algorithms can totally promote everything corporate and totally bury everything alternative. Um, I mean, again, even without technically censoring anyone, they've totally manufactured consent for ever for 99% of American consumers that just wake up and look at their phone and scroll through the news in the morning. They're only seeing corporate sponsored information. Yeah, 100%. And just to add one more thing, they haven't yet had to utilize this, but I think the natural progression of what Gavin's talking about is the net neutrality legislation, right? A few years back, uh, what's its a name? Uh, the head of the uh, board, uh, you know, they ruled that, uh, you know, there was no longer going to be those same net neutrality protections and that, you know, they were not legally obligated to maintain same internet speed to go to one website as another. They could charge you a different pricing platform to go to certain sites over others. And of course, what the fuck is going to happen with that immediately? Uh, yeah. How much do you think it would be to watch the Vanguard.com on your fucking internet if you lived in middle America? Too expensive for you to afford. So it doesn't matter if it's illegal or not, right? If you can't pirate that shit, it doesn't exist to you, right? I mean, uh, I mean that's just the, that's just the reality of the situation, right? Gavin and I know this. We, we think we're worth a lot, but we're not worth 
worth whatever it would fucking cost you to get to our website if uh, net neutrality laws were overturned. So th- there's all these different things that I think just to circle back, make it extremely chaotic and uh, make it extremely difficult for people to decide to do this line of work for a living. Gavin and I are in a uniquely privileged position of the fact that we don't have children. Uh, you know, we're just two dudes. We live together. Uh, we live and die uh, by whether or not we can pay rent together. And then that's like our fucking, you know, life that we have. Right. And, and we're able to do that because we're two 24 year old guys and like, fuck it. If we have to live a certain way for X period of weeks to, you know, make it happen, we're going to make it happen because we like doing this a lot. Um, but if you're 35 and you have a family and you have a perspective that you want to share, even if you're so good that you're making money, um, more money than Gavin and I are making, you can't afford to buy healthcare for your family as an independent person like this, which is another, uh, barrier that we didn't even get into, uh, which is the fact that we're all workers for YouTube and they obviously do not provide anybody with any kind of, uh, healthcare, even though they're owned by the, uh, alphabet, one of the biggest conglomerates in all of the United States, uh, and could easily afford to, um, so, you know, all these different things. And then they can also fire you on a dime without reason. And you have no way of doing it. Cause you're all just, you know, uh, you know, contract employees at the end of the day. So, um, yeah. When you read Edward Snowden's book, he talked about the difference between the, the internet that he kind of came up in and, and what it is today. And he, he almost referred to it. If I remember correctly, he kind of referred to it as a metaphor of it's the same thing that kind of had that, that took place with the expansion of America westward. You know, everybody went out west from the east, and it was this kind of wild country, da 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 da. They were colonizing the rest of the country, and you know, there wasn't that many laws there. You know, there was kind of just this wild, un- untamed territory to a certain extent, and you could get away with murder. But it, in terms of that, in regards to the internet, uh, uh, he he kind of laid it out in that in that aspect that you know it used to be this kind of wild west mentality. Um, and open for any ideas and any anything like that. And you could create any website you want, and, and, and it was all over the place. Uh, and then gradually, you know, uh, as you said, I think you, what you, when you said, you know, gentrification took over. You know, the corporate America came in and said, oh, well, let's, let's make this, let, let's put some boundaries on this, let's do this. Which, on one hand, yes, it's helpful for average John Q. citizen who's not like a major internet cat, just I want to jump on there and find some shoes to buy. Uh, but on the other hand, it does have these major problems, uh, especially when you're talking about free speech and you're talking about allowing people to truly express themselves uh, and, and allow that expression to be shared by others. Uh, yeah. It creates a much more difficult difficult base in today's internet. Well, I think you internet. just put your finger exactly on it, Tyrell. It went from being a, a place where you could engage with free speech to now it's a place where you go to buy shoes. Like it's just another extension of capitalism, another you know digital marketplace for you to consume on. Um, and and yeah, any other you know other utilities it may have had have been kind of thrown to the wayside. And and when I say gentrification, I mean that very literally. Not only as far as the fact that it's more corporate, but I mean, if you think about what gentrification does to like a neighborhood or an area geographically, you know, it takes once a vibrant, colorful place and kind of turns it into this corporate beige tone, 3D printed looking buildings. You know, everything just looks kind of the same and and nothing looks unique anymore. The same thing has literally happened to the internet. I'm sure you remember back in the 2000s, if you would visit a web page, the design on the web pages was much more interesting and colorful and artistic and there'd be little animations and every single website looked unique. Um, now you go to any website, even one that's independently owned, and they're all just like a Squarespace template or a Wix template. Um, they all look kind of generic, super unnecessarily minimalist for whatever reason with just like white and black and they all just look like crap. And I know that's just like a petty aesthetic beef, uh, but still I think it, it says a lot about the 
you know, direction of the internet, who's controlling it um, and how it's set up in the first place. Well, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. In following this creation of, of what the metaverse and the, and the, and then the next generation, I guess they're calling it the internet 3.0 or whatever kind of cute label they put on it. I remember kind of seeing all the descriptions of it and then seeing the videos of it. And then, I mean, you can kind of go on there now and, and fuck around on it and all that. But does it strike you? It struck me this way. And I want to ask you guys, because you're 24, I'm 42. Does it strike you as, as it's just one big marketing scheme? I mean, really, that's all like it seems like the metaverse is even or, you know, even things outside of what Facebook's doing. But it, it just OK, I get like basically it's 3D Internet, right? Oh, you know, that's the easiest I... way to describe it. It's 3D Internet. You go on. It's like you're in a room and all that. But really, it's just all about how can we market to people more? How can we get them now to create another level of economy now completely online, uh, but just with better graphics? Right. And and and, and that's exactly what it is. And and I, I mean, I don't want to sound conspiratorial about this guy. So I'll, but I'll, so I'll just put on my Tim foil hat before I go into this rant, because this is exactly uh, along the lines of, of what I've been fearing. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, as you if you combine all kinds of things, one, how expensive it is to live in your house. Right. Or to even have a house. Right. Uh, to live in an apartment. Right. Gavin and I have been talking about this all the, all the time. If you come in Kansas City, where it is supposed to be like a cheap place to live, you live here because you like quite like the people and you like cheap rent. Right. Uh, the cost between rent and like a mortgage, if you buy a house and you can like have one for sale, it's like, like half, right. Um, and, and more and more and more people are renting and why, and then hedge funds are buying up all the houses. So then you can't buy a house and then you can't get that mortgage and all the government subsidies that come from having a mortgage and, you know, tax write-offs and all those kinds of things. So what are people doing? They're living in like shoebox size apartments and where do they create uh, you know, they don't have any solutions for that, right? It's hot outside or it's too cold outside, or there's inclement weather, you're living in a shoebox, what can they have you do? You know, um, where can they get your last bits of remaining income, right? One, they can sedate you uh, through the amusement, right? And who can blame people, right? I'm not coming at this from like a fucking self-righteous thing, right? Uh, you know, people uh, who work hard jobs, uh, fucking, they deserve to be fucking sedated if they want to, right? Like they deserve to fucking relax and unwind. And so they're going to be drawn to something like this, which is what corporate America knows, this metaverse, right? Where you can unwind, uh, you have the freedom to actually experience uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, enjoyment of life and growth and, you know, prosperity in this, you know, little compound of, of the metaverse. Right. Uh, and it's like a simsification, you know, it's like playing world of Warcraft, but real life, you know what I mean? And you get to go in there and you get to obtain wealth and you can be of status in this game, uh, because they're no longer providing people the opportunity to become of status in society, unless you have some kind of birthright or a nest egg or, you know, uh, something to help you succeed, or you're just remarkably gifted or lucky and you're able to fucking skirt the cracks, right? This is the kind of world that they've set up. So I, I think 100%, they're just looking at the fact for this next generation of people who are very online, very inside, and foreseeably going to be very poor or working class. Uh, you know, this is the way that they can target them. This is the way that they can exploit them. Uh, you know, uh, pay to play games, you know, bonuses for in-game uh, fucking content, all those kinds of things. And again, I'm not judging the people that indulge in that, uh, just like I wouldn't indulge or judge anybody that indulges in any kind of, you know, capitalism. This is what they're trying to um, propel us towards. And it's obvious that to me, at least, that there's a, a concerted effort to get people more and more comfortable getting there. Um, you know, dopamine rushes from th these kinds of activities. Yeah. Yeah. The metaverse is interesting. At first I was really 
worried about its dystopian potential, the whole like matrix or ready player one kind of thing, you know, like, Oh, this is where we're all going to end up and stuff. But to be completely honest, I have been a little bit, my mind has been a little bit changed just watching the rollout of the metaverse. I, I, I do think that, you know, Zuckerberg or whoever is behind this, you know, the meta company, I think they're a little up their ass as far as how well it's actually going to do. Because if you've actually seen any footage of the metaverse, like I was watching a, a, a video that went uh, viral on Twitter of a rave in the metaverse. It was like, you know, a literal rave, but in the metaverse. And it looked really lame. Like it just looked really lame. Like all the little virtual people were kind of like standing around doing nothing, like walking in circles. And then there was some performers up at the, but like, I, I, I'm sure they want us all to end up there, but I don't think anyone's actually, at least for the foreseeable future, unless they really improve the technology and, you know, get VR going and all that stuff. But as of now, I don't know, man, I think the metaverse is going to flop. Can I put some a little bit of pushback into Gavin really quick? I don't want to take up too much time on this, but the one thing that I would say is that if we're not talking just specifically about the metaverse, Gavin, if we include all of the like broader, like, you know, MMO community games, and if we include like, you know, what, what it's going to look like when Rockstar finally comes out with the new Grand Theft Auto and when Bethesda finally drops the new Skyrim. And if you think that they're going, to, and they've already started doing this in the gaming community. I'm not plugged into this. I'm sure there are a bunch of people that would like listen to this and pull their hair out, but they've already started to incorporate a lot more. Like you can spend real money to buy this kind of things in those games. So what I was more commenting on is the fact that I do think that there's going to become just a much larger marketplace uh, for people to spend their money, uh, you know, in these like, action games and people are going to be encouraged to spend more and more uh, amount longer amounts of time in there and i'll just use my own example right because from sixth to seventh grade i literally my parents had to take away world of warcraft from me because i would play it for four hours a day every single day uh and 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 i thought that that wasn't that much because there were so many people on there for eight hours so you know what i'm saying i just think that i mean i agree that video games are getting more impressive as far as their technology goes but you could say the same thing about like dungeons and dragons back in like the 80s and 90s like oh i spent four hours a day playing D. my parents had to take it away you know what i mean like yeah video games are obviously getting better and better uh, but i just think that's a little bit different than the ultimate goals of the metaverse which is to actually replicate reality like going to raves going to actual events in them meeting celebrities these are the kind of you know things that are advertised by the metaverse that makes it different than a regular video game and i just am struggling to see the appeal so far yeah no i i agree i mean it's gonna it, it, it i've always said it's like until they give me the holodeck from star trek where i can like <laughs> physically go in and play with things right, and right. feel like i'm on a ship in like the 18th century until i get that the holodeck cool. yeah cool. it, it's gonna be a tough sell on tide to, to, to yeah. really you know want to partake it's gonna have to be really cool but it's in, but what was intriguing to me about it, it on a you know, something that even kind of scared me a little, well, not scared me, but like just something I was like, mm, this smells like a bad idea is, you know, where they're talking about building all these new economies within this digital world. I'm like, hell, we can't even get the economy in the real world working correct. How the fuck are we going to now like add layers of you can be an architect in the metaverse and you can do this and you can hire people to build your apartment digitally, you know, and all this kind of thing. We can't even get capitalism restrained to an extent to where it's actually helping people rather than hurting people in the real world. Now we're going to add another layer to it. And I think I I'd say that to then go into my next question. Well, into my next thing, I kind of want to hear you guys' opinions about. It's kind of the same thing I'm seeing now with virtual currency, with Bitcoin and all mm. of this, where great, you created this brand new currency, but it's still playing by this antiquated rules of capitalism of old. 
And now we're kind of with the big fall this last spot, summer and things like that. Now you're kind of seeing the reality of it. I think it was Matt Taibbi put out a great article kind of showing how basically because it's, there's so much unregulation with it and you have politicians who are either making a fortune off that unregulation or on the other side, you have politicians who don't want to touch it because they don't want to justify it. They don't want to give it credibility. Right. Um, that now you're seeing these kind of robber barons come through and, and, and destroy what what I guess one might say was the dream yeah. of digital currency. <laughs> you yeah. Know, well, what, I, what are you guys' thoughts on all that going on right now with, with digital currency? Well, Zach knows a bit more about Bitcoin and all that than I do, so I'll, I'll pass it off to him. But all I wanted to say real quickly is that ironically, a lot of the same people that are you know, hyping up the metaverse are the same people that are hyping up NFTs and all of these kind of crypto scams, um, which is part of the reason why I kind of think of the metaverse as just, you know, a, a, a scam, something that's not really going to work out going forward unless it has major improvements. But yeah, I think it's an apt metaphor. And again, I think that, you know, intersection between those two communities says a lot. Yeah, I think I, I have a lot of thoughts on Bitcoin. Uh, when I was a young business school lad, it was all the rage to talk about, uh, Bitcoin in like 2016, 2017 era, right? That was when it like first exploded. And, you know, uh, I, I read a lot about it. Uh, and at the time, it really just seemed like a good way to make money. So I know I realized at the time, that's why everybody liked it was that it was a cash cow for anybody who wasn't that smart, you could go figure it out. And uh, if you understood the basics of gambling, you could figure out how to like, you know, make a make a quick buck on it. Uh, but the underlying technology never really seemed that uh, compelling to me. And I think that that's borne out by the fact that here we are six years later and there's still not a lot of utility uh, coming from the cryptocurrency community outside of the fact that they now have like, you know, uh, a bunch of uh, graphics cards connected to like fracking machines and they're, you know, mining as much as they can and polluting the environment. And uh, re really the only, uh, funny enough though, uh, the one, utility uh coin that did emerge that i think is you know, that was like you know uh justified uh was this uh to you know the the, the the exchange token for when where all these things were traded that coin consistently went up and up and up uh because why because it, it had an actual utility it served an actual purpose but i think by and large the crypto experiment as i'll refer to it as it, it just it really just does a number on the libertarian economic uh point of view right it, it, it's this idea that if we deregulated everything if we took it away from the powers that be and we just had anarcho-capitalism uh within the confines of this, uh, you know, currency, right? Uh, uh, to provide a, you know, uh, an anarchist fucking rival to fiat currency is essentially the like fucking morbid vision of all the dude bros on the internet, right? And that was what the fucking mission was, right? Uh, and and it just didn't work, right? And and I think that you you were correct to point out Matt Taibbi because one of the greatest things that Matt Taibbi ever wrote about was the financial crash, right? That dude wrote better than anybody about it, and you should read uh, his book Riftopia if anybody's listening that hasn't because it really breaks it down. Uh, and he you know is able to extrapolate on that quite well, and he was talking about how the lack of regulation the lack of oversight allowed the like Lehman Brothers and all these corrupt fuckers uh, to devastate the housing market in the United States. Millions of people lost their homes. Uh, banks were bailed out at the expense of the fucking civilian working class who was not bailed out. You know, those same fuckers that have to go rent really expensive apartments or townhouses or shitty duplexes now. Um, these, are, these are the people that got screwed. Uh, and, and, you know, he's, he's able to say, how could you possibly arrive at the conclusion that this unregulated, massively financed thing is, is not going to end poorly, right? Just like a big bubble bursting again. And, and, you know, my last point about all of this, for anybody that considers themselves a leftist that, you know, is, is enamored or was somehow like sucked into the idea that this was the like anti-corporate position, 
right? Uh, I t- just, I, I want anybody, and, and even anybody that's still holding on, just imagine for yourself what will happen if, th- because we all know, if you understand cryptocurrency, there's a finite number of Bitcoins, right? Once they are all mined, uh, and progressively fewer of them will be mined over time, right? Uh, th- that a-, a whale, somebody with billions of dollars, right? Or a collective with, say, $100 billion, they can buy up all of those fucking Bitcoins. And then guess what? They control the price of Bitcoin now, and there's no regulation to stop it. And if you think that's a good idea, you've never opened up a history book because you want to have kings again controlling your fucking currency. And that's exactly what would happen. Uh, And it would be not that different than the oligarchic control that we have now, which is why this doesn't present to me as a solution. Let me ask you this just about the content of your show and then what you guys look forward as you move forward into, into the future. Uh, you've had some incredible guests that you were able to pull for, for, for like you say, you know, two guys, two working class guys in, in the middle of the country. You guys have pulled some really good guests, especially for the, you know, especially for your politics. And you're not afraid to ask them hard questions. I think that's been one of the things I really enjoy about watching, like you guys talk with Glenn Greenwald and things like that. Is that you guys don't pull punches. You're respectful as hell, which is great because I love seeing dialogue like that as opposed to just two people yelling at each other and that like ESPN mentality of, of uh, political commentary. Who would you, if you could grab a guest who's no longer with us, who would that be? And who would you, and then conversely looking into the future, who would you love to sit down and talk with uh, if you had, if you could get anybody who's currently alive or in the future? I know my dead person, but I'll let Gavin go first. And I also just want to give Gavin a quick shout out because he's definitely the reason that we've gotten like 95% of our cool guests. So if you're curious about how we got them, you got to ask Gavin. God, that's such a tough question, Tyrell, uh, but it's a good one. So as far as someone who's no longer with us, um, and this might be what Zach was going to say too, but we did mention Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, is that what you're going to say, Zach? Oh yeah, of course, but go ahead, spoil it for me. No, yeah. I mean, obviously there's there's basically been no greater uh, political influence as far as Zach and I, um, uh, our own ideology, and, and also just the very unique kind of tone in which he was able to talk and write about politics that I truly don't think has been replicated since he passed. Uh, I mean, I just don't think there's anyone that's filled that void um, uh, like Hunter, you know, did. Um, So obviously it would be amazing to talk with him, although of course a little bit intimidating as well. Um, You know, I I, I even thought about him a lot during like the Trump administration, you know, like what would Hunter have been writing about this? Imagine his commentary on the shit show that we're living. I feel like we need his voice now more than ever. So, uh, you know, that's an easy one, but definitely Hunter S. Thompson. Um, As far as someone we haven't had the chance to speak with yet, but would like to, and that's still alive, um, you know, God, there's a couple. I I would probably narrow it down to the great Dr. Cornell West. You know, we've been, we've been uh, wanting to have a conversation with Cornell West for a long time. Unfortunately, haven't been able to make that happen yet, but uh, he's just someone that Zach and I both look to as a uh, font of moral clarity and um, just, you know, someone we really respect and look up to. So I'll leave it at that. And I'm interested to see what Zach has to say. Yeah. So obviously, look, we call him the patron saint of the Vanguard. I've been reading Fear and Loathing 72 uh, again for the 50th anniversary for a project Gavin and I are working on. Uh, and and every single time I'm just remarkably taken away by the prescience, by the foresight, by the lack of change that's occurred. Uh, you know, and within the first 50 pages of this book, he's writing about shit like how many of these elections are going to be written off as lesser evilism. He's talking about all kinds of the same shit. Uh, that we talk about time and time again today, uh, how nobody pays attention to the youth vote, the freak vote, all these kinds of things. I mean, the dude was so um, ahead of his time. 
uh, when it comes to that. And then, you know, it's funny. He was the, the dude was famously proud of himself. Right. And he once said that, uh, you know, he was uh, he was the greatest living writer using the English language as both a musical instrument and a political weapon. Uh, but I think it's actually true, uh, you know, and, and I think that if anything, me and Gavin were, you know, uh, influenced by the perspective of, of Hunter Thompson, because I, I mean, the more you read about like his like specific politics, it, it's like pretty opaque. Right. Like he changed a lot during his politics. And I don't know if we would agree on like 100 percent, like everything down the political line. But what I really, you know, take mo much of my inspiration from the guy from is one, uh, again, just just how genius his prose and I is I genuinely think he was among the great writers of the 20th century that should be announced in the breath of like Hemingway, Fitzgerald, the people that he admired. Um, you know, I, I, I you know, he, he's, he's up there with like Ken Kesey and like, uh, you know, all these people that were mammoths of his time and all that. Uh, but also just from the fact that, you know, uh, he never he, he always kept his own his own vision, his own working class. You know, he uh, he was from Kentucky. He grew up hard. His dad died when he was 15. Uh, you know, he, he was like running out and he kind of kept that attitude and he kept that energy and he wore his Levi's to press conferences in the seventies and sixties when that was totally unto do. Uh, and he just said, fuck you. This is who I am. I care about this more than you do. So don't fucking shame me with your pomp and circumstances. I'm here to say what the fuck I have to say and you can't do anything about it. It's a free fucking country. And, and we try and embody that. So I'd love to talk to that guy, even though it'd be hard to understand him at this point. Um, Living guests who would have the same problem and are easy for me to imagine would be so tight to talk to Bob Dylan. Let's just set the fucking uh, bar at the sun. One of my favorite living artists of all time, uh, just a fucking gem, uh, you know, not that that would ever have anything to do with our show in a way that I could ever reach his people or that Bob would ever fucking do anything like that. Hard to understand the fucker. But anyway, uh, guests that might feasibly come on our show. Uh, Gavin and I are big film guys. Uh, so we, there are two people that I always keep in my back pocket that are completely different, but one for personal reasons for me and Gavin, and then one just because we've been moved by their art would love, would love to get Oliver Stone on the podcast. Think, think he's a great filmmaker. He's made some of the most potent uh, political commentary that came in the form of narrative cinema, right? Um, so would love to get Oliver Stone on the podcast. And honestly, I know that sometimes he's a mixed bag. We don't agree with everything, but Gavin and I were, I think both also tremendously influenced by Michael Moore. And I would be completely honored to chat with the guy. I, his first you know, I would say five documentary films are among the most important films uh, in the documentary canon writ large, uh, you know, particularly films like Roger and me and Bowling for Columbine and, uh, and, 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 you know, that early, uh, early framework where he just completely changed the game. And, uh, you know, broke even, even like sicko, you know, he was talking about universal healthcare and Medicare for all before Bernie Sanders came on the scene. Uh, sicko is an amazing expose of the healthcare industry. So I totally second that I might've said Michael Moore, um, if I had thought of it before, uh, no shade to Cornell West, but yeah, would absolutely love to talk to Michael Moore. Zach and I both grew up watching his films and um, we're so impacted by them, not just as political statements, but as pieces of filmmaking. I feel like so many political documentaries and, you know, pieces of uh, uh, political um, uh, messaging when it comes to movies and stuff, they're very dry. They're very bland. And, and Michael Moore's were the opposite of that. Uh, that's funny. Speaking of my parents' political oversight, whenever I would play a Michael Moore movie, my mom would be like, oh, my God, why are you playing this? <laughs> I remember you guys were saying at one point or early on you were thinking about this and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you guys were thinking about taking like the podcast and what you guys do on the road. Literally, I mean, you have a van and your logo. Um, is that ever something that you guys would consider doing again in kind of that Hunter S. Thompson vein of saying, you know what, let's hit the road and well, just if you're see gonna America open up the door for us to plug something, Tyrell. Uh -oh, here uh, Gavin, we go. I wow, think you're ready look at that. 
This was unplanned. Plug away. <laughs> yeah, that's, you couldn't have asked the question at a better time, Tyrell, because actually Zach and I were uh, airing up the tires in the van this morning. I got that literally. son of a bitch started yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we are, in fact, taking to the, to the streets. We're, in fact, uh, going to be producing a little bit of documentary content um, going forward. It's something we've long talked about, and I think we're finally really ready uh, to get out there and do it. You know, we've made a few uh, documentaries before, but I think these are going to be better. Um, we have a couple ideas, one of which actually has to do with Hunter S. Thompson. We were talking a little bit about the 50th anniversary of um, his book, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972, or rather his collection of articles and essays from that time period. Um, so we wanted to do a little bit of a piece kind of reflecting on the legacy of Hunter, specifically that book, you know, talking to some people um, that are experts of his life and his work. And, you know, just talking about, uh, again, the fact that there's really no one like him uh, that's currently working in this space, um, reflecting on his legacy. So that's one project we're working on. There's also a really awesome tenant union, Casey Tenets here in town that we want to do a documentary talking about their organizing strategies and how they've been so effective at securing rights for tenants in a city like Kansas City. Um, so yeah, we have a we have a lot of ideas. We're really excited to to get those out to our um, you know audience and, and to everyone on YouTube because again, we've always been inspired by people like Michael Moore, people like Hunter S. Thompson, who are kind of able to you know uh, uh, present their political message or comment on the political landscape, but through the vehicle of you know, documentary filmmaking or writing or something to kind of spice it up a little bit. Um, so that's what Zach and I aspire to do. Obviously, not to say that what we produce will be anywhere near as good as what Michael Moore or Hunter S. Thompson have. But anyway, with those inspirations, you know, guiding us, uh, we're going to try our best. Yeah. Um, and we're super excited to hit the road. That's been like like one of the like things that's kept me up at night for so long is like this like drive that like we both want to get out on the road and make documentary content. However, ever, uh, obviously, as uh, you know all too well, Tyrell, there are many hurdles that you can run into when making uh, making footage or making footage, getting footage and making a documentary or any kind of uh, film uh, put together. But yeah, we're we're uh, well equipped now. Uh, we've uh, we've been working on, uh, you know, getting everything up to snuff. We were just getting some shots of the van or trying to earlier before we recorded this very podcast. Uh, so, yeah, the wheels are moving. We are in motion. Um, and, yeah, we're really excited to be able to start putting out some documentary uh, content, if nothing else, just because Gavin and I, uh, we've always been big documentary film consumers. Uh, it'll be fun to put together something. Obviously, Gavin mentioned we put a, uh, together a documentary on the tent city that people can check out on our YouTube channel uh, that we did about a year ago, uh, which was awesome. But, you know, we have, uh, you know, big ambitions and we want to, you know, keep producing stuff and uh, and uh, just, uh, you know, trying to get some real independent on the ground uh, insights from this country. Well, you know, you guys are more than welcome to come up and join me and Jesse when you're on your when you're on the road show. Uh, you know, we'd love to have you up here in Minnesota. It'd be cool to finally guys meet you guys in person. I want We're to be knocking you. on your door soon. Oh, please do. Thank you guys both for for everything that you're doing for the work that you're putting in. Uh, I definitely recommend folks going checking out uh, your podcast, your YouTube channels. Please hype yourselves up. Tell them where they can find you. Oh, yeah. Well, we're the Vanguard. Uh, I'm Zach. That's Gavin. Uh, we host a show called the Vanguard on YouTube. If you hit that subscribe button and the notification bell, because YouTube will fuck us if you don't hit that notification bell on there. And then you'll get notified every time we go live, which is pretty erratic. But usually you're going to see us on the second half of the week from the hours of like one to three thirty. Uh, and we do a rotation of guests. Gavin and I spitballing. Uh, and for the time being, we're also on call in. So if you're on call in already, you can guys can check us out there. Um, and yeah, uh, thanks so much for everybody that's uh, listening to this show. And thanks so much to Tyrell for having us on. 
Absolutely. And by the time people hear this, we might no longer be on call in, but definitely follow us on YouTube. Um, you know, that's where our, the majority of our content is going to be uh, found. Um, you can mostly just find it by typing in the Vanguard on YouTube. And as far as I know, we're the first channel that comes up. That's um, not Call of Duty. We're the first one. Right, right. Uh, try the Vanguard podcast if you don't see it. But either way, again, we should be pretty easy to find. Um, but yeah, anyway, thank you so much, Tyrell, for the invite. I had a great, great time chatting. Obviously, you're always welcome on our program. We uh, have so much in common, I feel like, with our uh, political values and stuff, even if we might have some disagreements. I think we have a really solid foundation that we share. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you're one of our favorite guests. So, you know, really, really uh, honored to be on your um, podcast for the first time. And uh, again, thanks so much for the conversation. Oh, yeah. Feeling is by all means mutual. Uh, thank you, guys. And definitely thank you guys, uh, all the audience out there for listening today. Always a pleasure.